Shelley Evans. I've been a member here for 30 years. And you like it? Yeah, I'm getting, getting used to it. <laughs> so people we say. We all love him. <laughs> well, he reads from the Torah real well. I'm Elaine Gladstone, and I hate to tell you this, but I've been a member here for 37 years, and I was two when I came. <laughs> Don't you wish it. Yes, yes. He's in, he's in Bethel. Participating over there tonight. Really? Who? Um, Debbie Siegel. Debbie. Joan Lang is in. Joan. Uh, Joan Lang. Joan Howard Lang. Beautiful. Debbie and Marty Siegel. Yeah. Think so. I think he, he's not with no, me. No, but I mean, in Houston. Oh, my brother! My brother's been here for seven years. That's what I was. Yeah, I've been years? here. He's been here for seven years. I've been here for like seven hours. So. Seven years. <laughs> I thought he was here longer. No. Rabbi Bones. I didn't mean to interrupt Just, you. I'm sorry. Uh, Israel Carberry. Uh, from here, but uh, I had to live in Texas ten years before I could say I was from Texas. I'm Siggy Chavez. I've been in Houston a few years. And I've uh, been a member here about a year? About-ish. My name's Patricia Kramer, and I've been learning with your brother for several years now. And uh, so I'm real happy that you're here. I personally am from Chicago, so I haven't ever gotten used to y'all. <laughs> we don't say y'all near as often as y'all say we say y'all. I'm Rabbi Gideon Estes, the Rabbi of Congregation Army. Been in Houston almost two years. July 4th, there'll be uh, two years of actually living in Houston. So it was a year ago when, when Governor Perry made that major event. That was a different kind of thing in terms of, this is actually like an ecumenical, like an interfaith kind of idea for not a gathering of Christians praying <laughs> as Christians. In Reliance at Stadium. At the ex- exclusion of everyone else. Yeah, I remember that was a controversy. Because I was actually sitting around the letter opposing that. Oh, that's so, so. funny. That's so funny. I saw that letter. My brother asked me if he should sign it. Because it was, it was saying like, you know, day, day of prayer for, all, you know, the governor of Texas should represent all of Texas. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. 
and he he had just a day of prayer for for yeah, Christians. Yeah, that 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 was this is actually like by an act of Congress that he declares that the first Thursday is a national day of prayer without kind of any guidelines. And it's there. <laughs> Mac Ballantyne did it, 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 it about nine months at the synagogue, I guess, something like that. Yes, I'm, I'm Rhoda Zella Ballantyne, this better half. Um, when my late husband and I moved here from Toronto, we moved to Houston and we joined Bethel. So we met some of the people here. And then from there, my husband had passed away, and then I went to United Orthodox, which I am a, a member there as well. And then we came back here because I like the group, and it's a great synagogue, and uh, it's close to home because I live in this area. But I've taught, I've studied with Rabbi Traxler, with Rabbi Goldstein, so you know the group. Yeah. It seems like you've stopped up in every... Uh... <laughs> So it's in Rabbi Traxler as Chabad. So this is U.S. Chabad. Basically, you're, you're friends with everyone. I am, <laughs> and I've worked for Jewish organizations. So. Okay, I'm Rita Marshall. I'm the only Native Texan at this whole table. No, no, Mac is. Oh, I'm sorry, Mac. I didn't know. <laughs> I apologize. But usually, I'm the only <laughs> Texan in the whole group, and I've been a member. Like, I was at Beth Am first. We were at UOS when my kids grew up, and then we went to Beth Am. And then we went to Sugarland because I moved out there to be near my daughter who lost her husband. And then we came back here. And so it seems like I've been here forever. I don't remember ever not belonging to the synagogue with most of these people, except for the new ones. And I, they're like family. Thank you. <laughs> You're only saying that because I'm picking up the bagels tomorrow. <laughs> And other things. <laughs> uh, my name is Rabbi Yaakov Welby. I grew up in New York, but at the, at the tender age of 16, my parents shipped me off to Israel to learn a yeshiva there. Uh, I was there from 16 until uh, I was 20. I got married when I was 20. Mm. You know, mm. um, I'm 25 years old now, so I've been married for five years. I have three children. Uh, I received rabbinic ordination um, from the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Court of Jerusalem at the age of 23, a uh, little, little bit more than a year after I wrote my first book. You wrote a book? Well, that sounds like I wrote two books. I wrote, yeah. <laughs> I will say I wrote my first book. So far, it's the only one, but it's still my first. <laughs> and what was the topic? It was, um, it was Talmudic, oh. and it was in Hebrew. Oh, well, forget it. <laughs> it was called? Um, it was called uh, which is a, it's a, it's a verse in, in uh, Leviticus 18. Um, it talks about a lot of end-of-life situations in, 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 uh, in Talmud. Um, yeah, so that was uh, the age of 20, uh, 22, and then 23, I got my uh, smicha, my rabbinic ordination. Uh, like I said, I was uh, heavily courted by Torch, because my, my older brother is the is, is, is director of Torch, and he wanted, to make, he wanted to bring me in. He has an eye for talent. You <laughs> <laughs> only say that because he's not here to defend himself. <laughs> And I could just see your family getting all together. All oh yeah, together. I'm one of nine uh, siblings. I'm, I'm the sixth of nine children. 
And your mother was busy. Yeah, my, my mother's a superwoman. So. Sounds like it. And my wife is also, so that's how definitely. How many girls and how many boys? Seven boys and two girls. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Three boys, then a girl, then three boys, and then a girl, and then another boy. And where do your parents live? <laughs> my parents live in upstate New York, about a half hour from the city. And there's only two, two children yet, uh, yet unmarried who live at home. Mm-hmm. And my parents were married for 38 years. Um, so now I joined, I joined a torch faculty. I'm sure everyone here has heard of torch. Oh, yeah. So I want to say, I know this is the first time torch has been here, but torch um, was founded in 1998 by a group of Houston families. They brought in, um, I think, four, four rabbis. And over the years, we've progressed and we've grown. And uh, now we have um, five different divisions. We have a Jewish ethics division, which, uh, which is the... Robert Grossman, very good. Who's it? We, we give uh, credits for um, doctors and lawyers who need their accreditation for, for ethics. Um, so that's one division. We have the young adults division, which I head, um, which is why I'm here. And uh, uh, we, have, we have the women's division. We have Shalhevet. This 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 um, this Shalhevet is our congregational partnership, which I'll get to a little a little in a little bit. What we do exactly with with congregations, how we partner up with congregations, and the last one is for high school kids is is the the JSN or JSU. I'm new here. <laughs> so now Shalhevet was it's only two years old, but it's our by far our most successful program. Shalhevet means uh, a flame which is a reference to the verse in, 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 in the Song of Songs, which talks about the Shalhevet Yah, the flame of God, which we view as that spark, that Jewish spark that makes us so driven and so determined to accomplish great things like Jewish people are, you know, across the world are doing incredible things in all, in all spheres. That's, the, that, that's, that's a result of the Shalheves Yah, the flame of God that's within us. So Shalheves is playing that, and that idea, which is when we partner with, with synagogues, to you know, to um, offer um, a, a an offering of adult education, and um, Orami is the 11th synagogue in Houston that we've partnered up with, which is which is a, be- a beautiful number. Which you know, it's great when all Jews come together, and and you have the the widest array of of congregations that all have this one thing in common that they wanna they wanna grow and they want to. Um, learn and become educated in all different areas of Jewish thought and Jewish life. And today, it's a very special day in Torch's history, because A, we, we, we have a first class in RME. We're very excited about that. And number two, we signed up our, our 12th congregation, which I forgot the name. The Houston Congregation of oh, Reform Judaism today signed up to, to have shall have it. We're oh, going to be there in, in June. That's very exciting. That's exciting. Now, I wanted to say one more thing, a tremendous thank you to the, one, the, the young rabbi, the dynamic rabbi of this congregation, Rabbi Yudon Estes, who uh, was so you know, accommodating and so, you know, it's a tremendous, tremendous um, pleasure that you guys have, that you're able to have such a wonderful leader, so young and dynamic, to, to run your, your organization. I'm sure you're going with them to, to Israel, right? Yeah, that's going to be fun. I, I wish I could join. <laughs> I really miss Israel. I've been out for so long, and, and thank you, um, thank you, Reverend Estes, for making this happen and bringing us in. And it's a tremendous, tremendous honor for us to be here. It's a win-win. Win-win, yeah. Okay. Um, so tonight's topic and the topic of, of our our series, the Six Week series, is is Musar. Musar. Has anyone ever heard the topic, the name Musar, the word, the word ring a bell for anyone? 
Anybody wants to venture an idea of what, what this is? Or Francis, come on, teach us. So, um, what Musser is, is a startup by Israel Salanter. Um, it's, uh, it's basically the way I kind of describe it is basically it helps give you that kind of teachings to help you lead a good kind of moral life. It Musser helps give us direction of how we should live. And it's the ways of kind of directing us towards um, generally the polite way when someone wants to give you some corrective advice is they ask you if they can give you a little bit of Musser, which kind of helps you on not just like the, it's not about halakhic kind of things in terms of like, you know, the ritual measurements of how we kind of do something. It's more about the moral principles of how we guide life and how we kind of direct ourselves. Mm -hmm. There's no way I could read it as a good introduction. Um, so so Musar is the, is the way of Jewish self-discovery, discovering who you are, and self-perfection, character and ethical perfection, right? You know, there's two parts of Torah. There's two parts of what we need to do. We need to, you know, observe the mitzvot and do what we need to do and do what's, you know, learn the Torah, etc. And we have to become better people. We have to become perfect people. We have an obligation to take our midos, take our, our character traits and, and improve on them and, and correct them, you know? We're all born with a certain amount, an innate amount of good and bad characteristics. Obviously, we see with young children. Young children, from day one, you could see that they have different temperaments. I know I have three children. Each one of them is just a totally different, you know, uh, different kid, totally different makeup, totally different uh, character makeup, you know, in, in every way. And people are born with a, um, a, a, a collection of good and bad Midos, Midos, Midos is the Hebrew words for, for, for traits, but it really means measurements. Like a character trait, and it means also a measurement, because you have a certain amount of anger, and you have a certain amount of patience, and you have a certain, a certain measurement of these qualities and these faults. And your job is to, is to balance it in a way that you are a perfect person. You, you have the perfect balance of, of patience, and you don't get angry too fast. You are generous, you're kind, you're... Um, you, you, don't, you, you don't get angry, you have, you know, there's a whole list. I have a whole list here of, of, of different, uh, different mitos, different characteristics. I have a list of hundred, like a few hundred good traits and bad traits. So there's plenty. And, and, and Musr is what we use to make ourselves better people. Now, Rabbi Estes referenced Rabbi Israel Salanter. Rabbi Israel Salanter was a rabbi who lived in the 19th century, from, I think, 1817 to 1883. Uh, Make sense? Yeah. And he was the one who took this idea, which is this part of Judaism, and made a movement out of it. He made people who were Musr people. And I want to talk tonight a little bit about, because we're talking about the introduction to Musr, I want to talk a little bit about the, the background. What was the backdrop towards this, um, this movement that was started by Rabbi Israel Salanter? Salanter is actually not his name. His name was Lipkin. But he lived in a city called Salant, so he's called Salant. It's sort of calling, um, it's sort of calling uh, me, or, uh, Rabbi Yaakov Houstoner. Same thing. But that's, you know, that's the way it is. Uh, you know. By the way, I just said I'm a Houstonier, a Houstonian. I just said that. <laughs> yeah, like I was hoping someone would notice that. <laughs> but it's a Houstonian. Rabbi Yaakov Houstonian. Same thing. Rabbi Israel Salanter. So I wanted to talk about a little bit about the back, the backdrop on to, you know what was going on to the Jewish people at that time that spurred him to make this um, movement. And like why he felt it was necessary to have a major sh uh, like re reshifting of the focus of our Judaism. 
So now, we're talking about the period that, that's called the Enlightenment, right? After the Renaissance, the, there's the period called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, they say, it started about the year 1650 to about the year 1850. That's the time period given. And uh, the two words that I always use to describe the major shifts in ideology that happened in, in, the, in, the, um, in the Enlightenment is nationalism and rationalism. What does nationalism mean? In Europe, pre, before the Enlightenment, it was just one big mess. It was the church dominated everything. There were no individual um, uh, member nations. Everyone was, it, was, it was just pretty much like one country was dominated by, by Christianity. Comes along the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment does is that it gives, it gives member nations national identity. There's nationalism. You are, first and foremost, uh, a Spaniard or an Italian or a German or a French. They gave people the, an identity as a country above religion. Religion, religion was, was relegated to secondary importance. That's, that's nationalism. Rationalism is when Christian Europe put God in the back seat, put religion, put the church in the back seat, secondary importance. Now everything is dominated by the human mind. Right? Empirical science, industrialization, the scientific revolution. These are all things that became super duper big during the Enlightenment period. The birth of liberal democracy. We value humans as a human, as an individual, not just as an extension of, 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 of the church. These, are, these, these, these seem to us as very basic ideas, but during this period, or before the period, talk about the Dark Ages, there was no such a thing as civil rights. You had no rights as a human being. You, you were nothing. You were a serf. You, you're, you're a pawn in the hand of someone else. The church dominated everyone. They dominated everything. All you were was just like a, you know, a pawn or an asset um, in the hand of, 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 um, of, of the rulers. At this time, we see the introduction of secularism. Secularism is when people, when the, may the focus goes away from God towards, towards, uh, towards men. We see, we meet great political thinkers like John Locke, right? The, we know that the Constitution of the United States is based upon primarily the teachings of John Locke, rights of, rights of a man. We meet a fellow by the name of Isaac Newton, um, who obviously one of the greatest scientific minds out there. This is an explosion of, 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 of the, human, the human as a person, and as, as someone who's able to change the world himself as an individual. How does this affect the Jews? So obviously, when, when the Gentiles are less religious, it's always a better thing for us. Right? For like a thousand years, the Jews were persecuted they were viewed as subhuman. They were viewed as the, as the devil. That's who they were. They weren't allowed to do anything. You know, they were viewed as, as a, you know, the scum of the earth. And now, obviously, well, this is an idea which was resurrected by Hitler, as Jewish, Jews being subhuman. But now, the Jewish, peop, the Jewish, Jewish people recognize as, as, as humans, and they were allowed to mainstream into, into, the, um, into the general culture, which is a beautiful thing. The Jewish people were allowed to have... Um, they weren't allowed to own businesses. They weren't allowed to go become professionals. They weren't allowed to become doctors or lawyers. They, they, were, they, were, they, were, they were limited by every, by, 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 by every um, office, by every higher office. They couldn't run for, for, uh, for, for, for public office. They were limited. 
there were edicts of toleration to the Jews. Jews were allowed citizenship, which is a beautiful thing. Now we take it for granted. We're citizens, of course. You know, we have we have we have human rights. We, you know, we're no different than anyone else. But in the in the thousand years that preceded the Enlightenment, the Jews were not allowed to own property, to vote. Obviously, they weren't allowed to have any votes, but they weren't allowed to do a lot of things. You know, even as recently as the the, the eighteen fifties, Jews were not allowed to have citizenship in Spain and in Switzerland. Now, yeah, but yeah, but the, the, the official expulsion was still part of law. Like the Jews, Jews were, were the expulsion that uh, that had happened in the you know the the Inquisition in the in the fourteenth fifteenth century. That was still law till as recently as a hundred years ago. I think it was nineteen twenty one when they when they finally changed that law. It means the law that Jews aren't allowed to live here to, by, as living as Jews. That was the law as recently as 100 years ago. It's so hard for us to imagine that. The major event of this time is the French Revolution in, in 1749, right? They killed the, uh, the, kill Louis XIV. Napoleon's crowned emperor. Napoleon loves the Jews. Napoleon, he goes on this military conquest, taking over all of Europe, right? Taking over everyone. And everywhere he goes, he spreads the ideas of the Enlightenment. He spreads it like, what was the motto? The motto of the French Revolution was liberty, equality, brotherhood. They said that even though, even as they were killing people. <laughs> They're killing people left and right. But hey, as we know, you've got to break a few eggs to make a good omelet. <laughs> so as Napoleon takes over Russia, takes over, takes over Europe, he puts into motion a very liberal outlook and attitude towards the Jews, where eventually all European countries grant citizenship to the Jews. So after a thousand years of being marginalized economically and physically in every way, socially, the Jewish people were allowed to do everything at once. The 19th century was a great um, century with regards to anti-Semitism. There were no pogroms, like none of those major events of outbreaks of anti-Semitism. What, what, what do you say, Rabbi? For the most part, no, but there, there were still various ones at various times in the 19th century. But not to the same scale, we'd And say. then at the end of the 19th century, you had major ones, like Kishnev well, things like that. 1881 is the one, some of the worst part of in Turkey history. So. I guess that's true. <laughs> <laughs> there was also a lot of intellectual... Um, no, 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 it's, 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 it's true. The Haskalah and, and, and the yeah. emancipation was the major kind of thing of the 19th century. I'm just history major. That's okay. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> I think there was racism even after that in, in Houston, at least. I know there were places we couldn't live in Houston and places we couldn't go and country clubs that we couldn't belong to. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, so, yeah, I mean, just recently. Today, well, maybe, but not as bad as it used to be. What, does anyone here really think that anti-Semitism doesn't exist? Well, it sure does. Yeah. yeah, you know, which place had the greatest outbreak of anti-Semitism in history? That was, you know, Nazi Germany, obviously, right? Where they came, where, they, where they, they created a plan of mass genocide, killing all the Jews. You know, Hitler did everything to try to kill as many Jews as possible. He lost the war in order to try to kill the five million Soviet Jews. We all know that. You agree with that? <laughs> <laughs> He's looking at him. I, I read in the foreword that there are people moving 
Jews moving back to Germany oh, yes. because of the economic situation. Berlin is the fastest growing Jewish city in Europe. Yeah, it's it's there's there's I think tens or maybe even hundreds of thousands of Russian Jews are leaving Russia and going to Berlin, going to Germany. But think about it: the place that was the most liberal and the most democratic and the most sophisticated country in the world in the in the 19th and early 20th century, that is the place that had the biggest explosion of, of anti-Semitism ever. It's one of those ironic things about, about Jewish history well, that... You can really say the same for Spain in the Inquisition period. I guess. The, the golden what? age in Spain was wonderful. Spain was you know, so advanced over most of That's Europe with the Islamic influence, and then... Which, you know, it seems to be how it goes. You know? There was also the economy in Europe that led to... What? That led to the... To the Second World War. Well, obviously, there's a lot of factors, and and uh, and, and and you know the the League of Nations, what they did to the to the Germans. Uh, um, the you know, the, was horrible. Yeah, and uh, but but still, I'm saying we're we're talking about the most sophisticated yeah. country in the world was Germany, mm-hmm. the most um, uh, aristocratic or how do we say like uh, upper class country. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to say it, but. And, the one where the so Jewish are there very was many Jews left in, yeah. up there on Germany and Russia? Are what, there? now? Yeah. For left, sure. Because I hear that there isn't as many as there were. For sure not. <laughs> they were all killed. We know there, that. There are really, really very few in there anymore. Yeah, but I'm talking about even before the war, before World War II. How could you, if I told, if I told you, if, we're, if, today was, if today was not 2012, it was 1912, and I will tell you that in 30 years, there's going to be this tremendous explosion of anti-Semitism in Germany. Yeah. You would never believe it. You would say no. maybe, maybe in, in, in Russia, Russia, yeah, Russia, or in, in Poland, or, you, that's what you would say. In Germany, yeah. in, Germany's the most sophisticated, um, advanced country, liberal country in the world. Yeah. Anyway, it's one of those ironies about, about that, uh, about um, Jewish history. Um, so now, this time we have Jewish Jews reaching the highest offices around the world, like cabinet ministers, etc. The prime minister, twice prime minister of England, Benjamin Disraeli, was a Jew, even though he baptized. We know, we all, we all know that you could baptize a thousand times. You may get wet, but you'll for sure stay Jewish. <laughs> and he, he was he was a Jew. You know, obviously he he baptized. He, Became Christian, but he's still Jewish, and he he rose to the top to become the um, to become the Prime Minister of England, which is a tre- you know tremendous um, you know a tremendous office. You know, Jew, you know the Jewish people <coughs> they were allowed to um, <coughs> excuse me. So, what was the Jewish reaction to this? So, obviously, there were some Jews who just the emancipation and the the I guess the temptation. Of, of, of being able to finally, after, after hundreds of years, being allowed to live amongst the general population and to get educated like everyone else and to own businesses like everyone else and to own land like everyone else, that, that, was, that, that temptation was so great and they just totally assimilated. But that was, I would say, is a minority. Would you agree to that, Rabbi Estes? Probably, yeah. yeah. But the majority of Jews at that time, they tried to make some sort of synthesis between... Germany, you know, or Germany, uh, Germany is the, is the epicenter, but 
between their host nation and their Judaism. You know, they, they tried to assimilate in a way where they could somehow come to a um, toward peaceful coexistence, sort of meet, meet the Gentiles halfway. You know, they're letting us come to their universities and, 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 you know, and join their industries. We'll also give up a little bit of our Judaism in order that we could be, be able to have peaceful coexistence. The problem with that is that too many, too many Jews were just dropping their Judaism and dropping enough of their Judaism where um, it was sort of like a, like a stampede of, uh, away from Judaism. And this is the backdrop on which we see um, the, the, the Musser movement form. Now, there were two major Jewish reactions to this problem, or the two response. The Jewish response towards the problem of Jews assimilating and, and leaving, abandoning their Judaism there were two major responses, two major movements that came out of it. One of them was successful, very successful, and one of them failed miserably. The one that was successful is the Hasidic movement. That was successful. The one that failed is the Muslim movement. And the reason why the Hasidic was successful is because what the, the, the Hasidic movement was uh, centralized in Poland. Now, in Poland, the, the Jews were, were very le- were less sophisticated, as you as you might imagine, than their than their friends in Lithuania and, and Germany. Um, and what the founders of Hasidus what they what they what they offered was they opened up the door to to um, social Judaism. But they they made Judaism so much fun, and they they partied nicely, and they sang, and they made it so much fun, and they made such a tight community that people. Um, would not abandon their community and, and you know and, 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 and assimilate, which that was very successful and it's you know it, it swept over the entire Poland. Everyone became Hasidic, whatever that means. We're not getting into that today. Um, you know, it, it, it came with a, it's, a, it's a very clear social structure of, of, of a community setting where everyone could feel at home, everyone could feel comfortable. And you know, as we know today, they still maintain their distinct look. You know, they, they you know we're we're Jewish. They, you know, everyone knows that. And they have a supreme leader, and and they have, to have such a tight community where people just—it's so warm, it's so friendly, it's so much fun. Just you know, they, they focus food. on the pleasure, food. Exactly, everyone knows. Yeah, <laughs> there's tons of food and there's tons of drink, <laughs> and and that was a way that they was they were able to sort of protect themselves <laughs> from the the influences of of the Enlightenment period. Now, obviously, the best would be is to have to have the benefits of both, but it was really hard to, to you know, to. I think in, in America today we're able to ha- we're able to benefit from the you know we don't need to, like I have plenty of friends who go to law school or go to medical school and they wear their kippa, they, they, you know, they're comfortable enough because it's that that's the environment we live in today, but but 200 years ago it was very difficult for you to go to go to school and study philosophy with your with your kippa on. So in order to protect um, um, the Polish Jews from that influence, the Hasidic uh, movement's founders, they developed this community, this community setting where, where people would feel so comfortable and so warm they would never leave it. Rabbi Israel Salanter, because he was in, in, um, in the more, shall we say, sophisticated uh, area of Europe, as in Lithuania and later on in Germany, he came up with a totally different new idea in order to... Um, ostensibly, to give Judaism such deep meaning that no one would ever abandon it. What he developed was called the Musser Movement. Now, I wanted to give a, a few, I think there's, to best illustrate what Musser is, 
I collected a few stories about Rabbi Salanter. And these are, these, these, each one of these anecdotes is like a, a, is a, is a nugget of wisdom that demonstrates what Musser is in, 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 a, uh, in, a clear, in a clear way. So the story goes, and I don't know if this one's true, this one, this one is like the legend about Rabbi Salanter, that he was once praying on Yom Kippur, holiest day of the year. And obviously he's the rabbi, he's sitting in the front, and he's praying, and he's praying, and the guy next to him is just sobbing, and he's crying, and he's just, and he has his prayer book, and the tears are cascading down his face, praying with such devotion. So Rabbi Salanter had this inspiration. He wanted to pray in such a prayer book that there was such devotion you know, put into every word. So he started leaning over to try to pray from that guy's book. And the guy saw him and shoved him away. This is my book. So Rabbi Salanter said, how is it possible that someone who's so devoted in their Judaism, in the ritualistic part of Judaism, could be so mean and so act in such a way on Yom Kippur, there's something majorly missing here. He doesn't, he's not growing from within. If someone who's, who's really taking the lesson of Judaism to heart would never do such a thing. Push someone away on the, on the holiest day of the year? But to push someone away who wants to read from your, from, from your Siddur? There's something, there's something, major, there's something off in, the, in that the picture just does, doesn't add up. This person obviously is focusing way too much on the real ritualistic part of Judaism, but not focusing at all upon what Judaism demands upon us in our relationship of man to man, in our interpersonal relationship, in our ethical uh, status, in our character perfection. He's not focusing on that at all. So what he was, what he did was, is that he was a tremendously brilliant man. There's a story goes that he would he would go he, traveling rabbi he would go from town to town, and he would he would give a, a discourse a Talmudic discourse. And he came to one place, and now because we know that Jews are very resistant to, to new ideas, Jewish people don't like new ideas. You come up with a new idea, a new solution, a new out, new outlook, a new view on life, people are going to reject it. So he had obviously a lot of detractors. He had people who didn't want him to succeed. So, what, so one time, he would come to a new place, and he was going to give a discourse. And the way he, what he used to do is he would give a tremendous halachic or Talmudic discourse, brilliant, he was obviously a very brilliant man. And then afterwards, once it's over, he would throw in like Musar ideas, because once he has their attention, he's able to, it's the, it's the famous bait and switch that we all know. Once you have someone's attention, you know, you throw in what you really want to say, and he doesn't even notice that, you know, it's, it's a little bit clandestine way of, of, of getting information across. So he would always give a tremendous discourse, and everyone would come, the famous rabbi, the famous Zagon, the famous brilliant um, scholar, and they would go and listen to him, and, you know, he would obviously gain their approval, you know, he would gain their, you know, they would trust him, and then at the end, he would hit them hard with, with some heavy-duty musr, and he would tell them, you have to make yourself a better person, you have to work on your perfection, you have to ethical and character um, um, perfection that you, need, that you need to work on. A way for, you know, back door, a way to get in. So he reached one place, one town, and they used to put a list of, of sources, a source, source sheet that people would read beforehand, and he would go up and, and, and give a discourse on the sources that were provided. So he got to one place, he goes to the door and he sees the sources and some guy had taken off his sources and put on a whole bunch of random sources. A bunch of like random sources that have nothing to do with each other. 
obviously play a trick on him. Everyone prepared those sources, and he was going to connect the ideas, and they, they you know, they, they uh, and it was totally unrelated. So he was such a tremendous genius. And he sat there for two minutes and thought of the sources until he came up with a brilliant discourse relating to the sources that were altered. <laughs> this shows us, A, the magnitude of what, like, what kind of intelligence we're dealing with. Tremendous, tremendous genius. And there was a lot of resistance to this new idea. This new idea, like, don't, you know, Judaism has been around for 5,000 years or 3,000 years, depending on how you count. Don't come in with new solutions. Uh, obviously, um, he was right. You know, his solution was his solution was um, a, tr- a tremendous idea, but obviously the demands of Muslims, we'll see a little later on, were a little bit too much to become a mass movement and end up being a very um, targeted movement that was successful, but only in pockets. There's another story about him. That he was walking to shul, again, on Yom Kippur. This is another very famous story. And Kol Nidre, which is the biggest night of the year, and he, um, he heard a baby crying. So he followed, followed the noise, and he sees that there's a little baby crying, and the baby's nine-year-old sister is there trying to, trying to soothe the baby, but he found out that the mother, because the baby had fallen asleep, so the mother had gone to shul in order to, to hear Kol Nidre, in order to, 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 to daven, on the, you know, to, to pray on this, uh, you know, the, 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 the night of, of Yom Kippur. And she left the, the, her nine-year-old watching, watching, the, watching the baby. And now the rabbi of the town heard the baby crying, so he went. And he saw that the, the nine-year-old sister does not prepare a bottle. So he went to the kitchen, prepared a bottle, gave a bottle, soothed the baby. He was about to leave, and he saw that the, that, that the nine-year-old, the, the girl, didn't want him to leave. She was a little kid, you know, you know, and, you know. So he stayed there the whole night. The whole night, he just stayed there. Until every, all until the prayer was over, and he just stayed there with with, with the baby and, and and the child. And his his that's a Musser outlook. Praying is a beautiful thing, but it does not have the same weight as kindness. And you see a child in distress, and a baby, you can't just leave them and go and, and go and, and go fulfill your ritualistic obligation of prayer. Prayer is nice, but there's nothing that has the same scale as kindness. And taking care of you know of, of 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 a baby who has no one else to take care of him. I thought you were obligated to pray. You are obligated to pray, but there's a conflict here, right? You can't do both. You can't you can't go you can't pray um, with the with the congregation and take care of the baby. You, you can only do one. Mm-hmm. What's more important? So most people say, "Well, it's Yom Kippur. How can you possibly miss it? The most momentous day of the year in the Jewish calendar. How can you possibly miss it? Well, you, you can't unless." There's something that overrides that. And, and Musser teaches us is that the most important or the, the objective, the end goal of everything we do ritualistically is all to make us better pe- persons, make us better people. That's the end goal. If you focus too much on the, on, on the ritualistic aspect of it and you don't think at all for a second about what it's supposed to do to you, how it's supposed to make you a better person. If you do a mitzvah, you do a commandment, you, you listen to the Torah, but you don't ever intend to become a better person, you miss the boat. Okay, based on that, Rabbi, <clears throat> the mother wasn't obligated to pray, but the rabbi was. So, you well, know, the man the, the, was. Well, um, the mother, she left. 
she's not part of the story. We don't know what happened oh, okay. to her. <laughs> I'm just going by what you said. I'm yeah, but, 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 but Rabbi Salanter, he, even though he was the rabbi of the town, mm-hmm. he was the number one leader, Jewish leader of, of, of his generation. But, you know, and, but he was the one who exemplified this idea, or this idea is, is, is emblematic of the Musa approach. Musa approach is you have to become a better person. That is the reason why we do anything in, a, in Judaism. You have to become a better person, you have to perfect yourself. That is, that is it. That is it. You have to become ethical and character perfection. That overrides everything. Well, I would I think know. in the eyes of Hashem, that would be the mitzvah would take precedent. Well, they're both mitzvahs. I'm sure he died while he was taking care of the child. The mitzvah, oh, taking, the child, taking care of the child. I was thinking of the abandoned congregation. And, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. That's a good point because I, I assume that they probably didn't start without him. So they didn't start? And we're worried about him. I don't know. I don't know what the what the what the um, what the. So, so you have a precedent already of your story of that he's clearly dominating. He's not leading services on him because the previous story is the person with the mobster next to him. Yeah. So therefore, it's not it's not him that's leading the community because we can learn from the earlier story that therefore so therefore it's him dominating the community was not obligated. See, therefore, you don't have. This is this is what we do all the day, all day. By the way, yeah. so when we learn Talmud, so he's not he's not he's not like yeah. impinging on the community because then you'd have a different precedent, and then he would do worry about that kind of value of competing of still bettering the community. Therefore, he had the ability to stay there. And presumably, what was that again? Such that, that, that was that was Talmudic analytics. Yeah, I know. Where you say, well, the previous story, it was evident that he wasn't the one who was leading the congregation, right? Because he was looking into the both stories on Yom Kippur. And therefore, it must be that he wasn't leading congregation. <laughs> That's what we do. By the way, when we learn Talmud, we do that all the time. <laughs> he was once traveling in a wagon with his students, with his, a bunch of his prime disciples. And the uh, students were talking about the most erudite matters of, of Talmud, of philosophy, of all these grandiose ideas. And he's talking about the most simple matters. And this is Rabbi Salanter, who is the greatest Jewish leader of, of his generation. And he's talking about the most simple matters. It's like, for example, you have a collection of the greatest rabbis. And one, and one of the rabbis, the leader of them all, is talking about sports. Or he's talking about the news. Or, you know, a gossip magazine. doesn't make any sense. What's happening? Why would he talk about such, such matters of, 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 that, of, of, of literal no importance? And so he told the students, what do you mean? We're, it's us. Yeah, we're scholars. But there is a wagon driver. You can't just talk about things and leave them out of the conversation. You can't just talk amongst yourselves and ignore the guy who's sitting in front driving the car. So he would talk about ideas in order to not disinclude someone from the conversation. He lowered the level that, that everyone could participate. Once again, that, that, that's demonstrative of the, uh, uh, the Musser outlook. He was once in, uh, in Covenant, where a place where he was, a, he was a rabbi. One of the people of the community invited him for a meal Friday night, right, Shabbat dinner. And they get home from, 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 the, from the synagogue after praying, and they go to see that the, the, the table's beautifully set, but the challah, the breads, weren't covered. As we know, um, on <laughs> as we know, on Friday night, you always cover, you always cover the the, the, the challah, right? So the host was all embarrassed. The rabbi comes, and the challah's not covered. So he, he shouts out to his wife, Yidina, which is a uh, derogatory uh, way of saying things. What happened? Why isn't she not covered? Why, why the challah's not covered? So she runs in, she says, oh, I forgot. And he, he, you know, and 
she covers it. So Rabbi Salander says to him, why, why do we cover the, the challah on Friday night? Like why, why do we cover it? So the guy's a little bit surprised by the question. Well, of course, you know why we cover it. Because really, um, bread is more of a, um, a higher class food you know, introducing these different different levels of food for different for different brachot for different blessings, and really we should make the pidush on the bread. But because on Friday night we do it on the wine, so we cover the bread as to not embarrass the bread. So Rabbi Solomon says, "Don't your ears hear what your mouth is saying? If the if the Torah of Judaism, if we're worried not to embarrass the bread, how can you embarrass your wife? It's like." The most ironic thing, you're embarrassing your wife for not fulfilling the custom of not embarrassing the, the bread. Mm. Mm. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah, that's a good one, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's that Melvin Yeltsin, Yeltsin. What? He came up with that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is obviously, um, people, people have a tendency to ignore um, um, interpersonal relationships and focus just on the black and white. And Musa teaches you the most important thing that you need to do is focus on how you relate to other people and how you're growing as an ethical and moral person. Hmm. Another great, this is a great story. So he was once by a wedding and he was washing his hands. And we know before you eat bread, you have to wash your hands twice on the right hand, twice on the left hand, up to the joint. But in the Talmud it says, it's good, it's preferable to wash a lot of water. Right? Buckets and buckets and buckets. Well, not really, but preferable. And he was once by a wedding, and his students, he, he did just barely, 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 barely to, to the to the, knocker, to, to the joint. And he said to him, what's happening? How come you don't do, like it says in, you know, in the Talmud, it says in the sort of Jewish sources, classical Jewish sources, you're supposed to use a lot of water, use, uh, you, you, you know, use plentiful, ample amounts of water. So he said to them, obviously, there's there no tap. All the water that came in, someone had to schlep it from the well. He says, I have no right to do above and beyond the call of duty and pour more water on my hand when that water is, is manually imported in here by someone. I have no right. I cannot say, I cannot exercise my right to use more water and be you know, above and beyond what I need to do, if someone had to schlep that water, and I'll have to schlep more water in after, after I exhaust that water. Once again, the, the, the Musr attitude is that, that you, your most important thing is you have to become a better person, a more moral person, a more ethical person. And don't focus on the black and white and, 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 and miss what, what the goal of, of, of these ideas, of these mitzvot are trying to do to you. He was famous of saying, your heart is Rishus Hayachid, private domain, where your heart is personal. But your face, your countenance, that's public domain. That is something you always have to have a countenance, a pleasant countenance. When you meet people, you smile at them. I don't care what you're going through. You have no right to take your face and be sour, be in a bad mood. And make somebody else. Yeah. So I, I, I know uh, myself, I... I remember my, uh, my grandfather, uh, Rabbi Shlomo Wolmi, that's from the later, he was a, a famous Muslim master the past hundred years. Um, he was, yeah, we'll talk about him. He wrote 35 books about Muslim. He was a tremendous, tremendous Muslim master. 
So um, I remember when he was sick, he was, his body was being ravaged by cancer, 90 years old. He's, he, there's, there's pipes everywhere, he's in the hospital. Must, must be going through tremendous pain. But his smile was from here to China. That's what, your face, your face is, a, is, is public domain. You have no right to litter, quote-unquote, on your face. Your face has, that's one of his, his famous sayings. Another one of his famous sayings. Someone else's physical needs are my spiritual needs. Someone else's gashmius, which is his, his, his materialistic needs, that is my spirituality. My spirituality is to focus on what other person needs physically. For example, we know that if you go to Israel, they have something called like a minion factory, which is a place where there's a high concentration of Jews. Right? So they have, they have minions all the time, so they have a factory. It means they have a bunch of rooms, and all, around the clock there's always people, people praying. So there's always one guy who's outside who says in Yiddish, says, Shangadavan, 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 did you daven, did you daven? So, like, I always picture Rabbi Salanter standing outside, Shangadavan, Shangadavan, did you eat, did you sleep, did you drink? <laughs> Someone else's physical, material needs is my spiritual need, is my spiritual responsibility. That was another one of his famous scenes. And this is the classic. This next one's the classic. Late at night, he was busy studying. And he sees that someone else in the neighborhood lights on. So he walks there, he walks there, and he, um, and he looks and it's the shoemaker. And he's hammering away at the shoes, trying to, you know, fix the shoes. So he walks in, and he says, why are you up so late? It's two in the morning. What, are you fixing shoes now? So the, the, um, the shoemaker told him, he pointed to the candle. Obviously, there's no electricity, right? He pointed to the candle. The candle's lit. He said, famously, So long as the candle is burning, we could always fix. And, and Rabbi Salanter took this saying, this idiom, this maxim that this shoemaker had said, and he, he, it was his motto. So long as a person's flame is still burning, so long as you're still alive, right, you could still fix, you could still fix yourself, make yourself a better person. You could still fix it. Which I like the story in a double way, because A, there's the story, and there's the lesson. As long as, as that fire is still burning, we could always still fix and improve ourselves. But I think the story in itself is demonstrative of what a Muslim man's all about. Let's say someone told us this line. Someone said, yeah, as long as the candle's burning, you could still fit shoes. It's very clever. It's a nice, it's a nice way of saying things. But Rabbi Salanta, because he's a Muslim man, he's constantly prowling. He's on the look to try to make himself a better person. So anything he comes across, he's going to use it for his own personal growth and perfection. So some shoemaker who's, you know, not necessarily someone that you would think you would go to learn lessons from, but the shoemaker, he's looking for him for lessons, and he said this line, and he used it as his own personal uh, motto. So long as it's possible, so long as the fire is still burning, it could still, could still fix. Right? That, 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 that's, that's, that shows us a little bit about the Musr outlook. The Musr outlook is that person always has to be looking to make himself a better person. One last uh, 
one last saying from Rabbi Salanta, and I want to talk a little bit about my grandfather. He said like this, before I started learning Musser, before he started learning the, the, the wisdom, the ideas of Musser, I thought the entire world is sinners, but I'm pious. The entire world. So once he started learning the ideas, he started becoming a Musser person, he realized I'm also a sinner. Because you, you focus on, on a little bit, you, 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 the real Muslim has to know his shortcomings, has to know what he's lacking in. So once you know that, you realize you're not so perfect after all. And then after I spent a long time learning Musr, learning that is a Musr, I realized that I'm a sinner, but everyone else, they're righteous. Because the, the, the outlook is you have to look at everyone as, as them being better than you, them having something over you. So that's a little bit about, about the, the, the founder of the Musr movement, a little bit about him. I think, we, I think we all have a little bit more of a clear picture about what Musr is. And I want to talk a little bit about my grandfather, Rabbi Shlomo Wombi, um, and a little bit about um, his relationship with Musr. Do you have any questions yet? Comments? Are there any books on, on Musr? Hundreds. Hundreds? Hundreds, yes. There's classical books, there's contemporary books, there's books written in every language. I know my, my grandfather wrote more than 35 books, but they're all in Hebrew. Actually, as we'll see in the story maybe, he wrote books in German and Swedish because he was a, he was a savant of sorts. He was a very, very, like, he was a brilliant person. He, he was, he was you, know, you converse with him in eight languages, you know. Yeah, but he, he was a fantastic person. Like, he was, he was unbelievable. Wrote 35 books. How many people you know that wrote 35 books? When was he born? He was born in 1914 in Berlin. His father was a professor in the University of Berlin, professor of languages. His father spoke 12 languages. Hmm. Yeah, his father wrote books also, Eugene Walby. You could Google him. What a famous name you have. Uh, oh, yeah, what, Walby? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. There's actually not so many Walbys out there. No, that's Almost. true. Yeah, it's a very unique name. My, fa- my, my grandfather was an only son of someone who was an only son, of someone who was an only son. Hmm. So who knows how many, um, how many people have that name. And, and he moved to, to New York, or he moved to... Well, get this first. So he was born in Berlin. Mm-hmm. His father um, was a professor, a, me- a member of the aristocracy of Berlin. He was a professor. He, was, he wrote books. He was really, you know, the crowbar mustache and everything, and the top hat and the cane. And um, he was very antagonistic towards Torah Judaism, his father. But from a young age, my grandfather um, was someone who was always trying to learn Torah, always trying to grow. He would give, um, he grew up reform, but he, he, would, he would like give sermons at the age of 10 and 12. He would give sermons to his friends in the synagogue, in the temple. At the age of 16, he wrote his first book, right? He preceded me by seven years with that, um, <laughs> uh, in German, uh, about the three relationships that people encounter in their lives, right? Man to other man, right? interpersonal relationship, man and God, right? Re- relating to the Almighty, man and himself. How do you relate to yourself? Which is obviously a deal which seems a little foreign to us, but that's one of the themes about Moisture, to develop a relationship with yourself. At the age of 18, he was in Switzerland, and he had heard a um, talk, a Musser talk, by someone who had come in from Poland to deliver that speech. He was blown away. He was blown away by this talk. And afterwards, he went over to the man and, and profusely thanked him for this tremendous talk and tremendous influence that he had on him. And he said to him, 
You think what I said was, was special? You should go to Poland and go to the famous Mir Yeshiva and go hear the famous Rabbi Yerucham Levavitz. Now, to tell my grandfather in, in, uh, in 1934 to go to Poland was to, to tell one of your kids, go move to Nicaragua. You know, the, the distance between Germany and Poland is not so much. But, you, know, it's, you know, it's Europe. It's the same neighborhood, right? <laughs> but but uh, intellectually, ideologically, it was miles away. Anyhow, my grandfather had this interest, so he decided, why not he'll write his father a letter asking him if he could go to Poland to, to study there in yeshiva. So he gets a response a few weeks later in the mail. Yeah, go. And he was shocked. He was shocked. And later on, he discovered, we all know, like I always say about myself, I'm not, I'm not superstitious, but I'm a little stitious, right? <laughs> not, I'm not superstitious, I'm just a little stitious. His father was superstitious. His father had gone to a palm reader, a fortune teller, that week that he received the letter. The fortune teller, the woman told him, she looked at his palm, she said, your son is going to make a request from you this week. Grant him the request. And that week, he received the letter from my grandfather, can I go to yeshiva? So he was, you know, he was superstitious. He wrote it back, go. So he came to the yeshiva, and this, this, the mere yeshiva is like the Harvard of yeshivas. The Harvard of yeshivas. And um, Rabbi Yerucham Levavitz, Musser Master. He totally changed my grandfather, you know, the course of my grandfather's life. For the, you know, even though Rabbi Levavitz passed away in 1936, he was only with him for two years, but his whole life he was studying his works. He considered himself a, a lifelong student of, of, um, of, of Rabbi Levavitz. There is where his foundations in Musser really um, dug in. In 1938, as a German national, as a, member, as a, as a German citizen, they were all bounced out of, of Poland. We all know, Pol- right, Hitler was, was stirring up a lot of vitriol right, uh, towards uh, the rest of Europe. Everyone who was a German citizen in Poland was sent away. Right? Now in 1938, you're a German citizen, you're kicked out of Poland. Where exactly are you going? You're not going back to... It's not such a smart idea, especially in hindsight, for a German to go back to Germany in 1938. So he was a little bit, um, you know, in, in, in a little bit of a quandary. What do you do? Anyhow, that week he had received, he had received a, an offer to go to Sweden. Sweden was neutral. He went to Sweden. He was offered that, that week. He went and moved to Sweden. He served as a rabbi in Sweden. He learned Swedish. He wrote a book in Swedish. He lived there for eight years, and he survived. In 1946, he moved to Israel. He opened up a yeshiva which he had headed for 35 years in a place called Beriakrov in Israel. He moved to Jerusalem in 1982, where he passed away in 2005. Mm. Now he had, at his funeral, he was such a major name in, 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 in uh, the Israeli rabbinic circles. There were 100,000 people by his mm. funeral. 100,000. 100, it was an enormous, some Pesach, enormous, enormous, enormous funeral. He was a, a super duper name in in, in in the in the circles of of, of is, Israeli uh, rabbinic leaders. My grandfather, my father, actually moved moved to the United States. That's why I'm, that's why my father is Israeli, but I, he moved to the United States, so um, that's why I'm American. 
So your father was born in Israel? Father born in Israel, yes. Mm -hmm. My father's Israeli, but he moved to the United States. And uh, I was born in, in New York in 1986. Nice story. Yeah. Um, now, my grandfather wrote 35 books on, on Musser, all Musser topics. His magnum opus was a book called Aleishur, which means, uh, it's the verse in the end of Genesis, which means on top of the wall, which means he's a, he, he writes in his introduction, I'm going to take you on top of the wall, we'll go for a little stroll together, and we're going to look inside and see what the great Musser man looks like. And it's a detailed guidebook, step-by-step instructions how to become the perfect you. The ultimate self-help book. Now, I always say about this book is that it wasn't a bunch of ideas that he collected, he researched, he, he looked them up, and it was a description of the journey that he took in his journey towards perfection. He spent 28 years writing these two volumes. You know, he, he, even though he, um, he wrote many, many hundreds of, uh, uh, hundreds of articles and essays that, were, uh, that are some published, some not yet published, in manuscript form. But this was a description of his process from where he started, you know, and it's a detailed guide, but step by step, of, of character perfection and uh, Musser excellence. Some fascinating themes about, about him. He, he was so, his mind was so organized, his mind was so organized, that I, I looked at, his, at his, um, his manuscripts, and he writes, Pages upon pages without crossing out. <laughs> he could go through hundreds of pages, not one word's crossing out. It's, it's, it's something fantastic. Like, to me, when I write something, you write down a pa you write pen and paper, you write something, you think of a better word, you cross it out, you write, you write a different word, you think of a different idea. It's not, it's not exactly, because it's not exactly organized in your head. His head was so organized. He was a brilliant person, but besides that, he was so organized that he never would write something unless he knew that was the perfect word. And you could see, like, literally, notebooks upon notebooks, not one word's crossed out. And yes, that's, that's, that's my grandfather, that's my special, that's why I have a special familial affinity towards, towards, uh, towards Musar. Okay, so now what we discussed already. Musar is the Jewish philosophy, the Jewish way of self-discovery, ethical, and character uh, perfection. And I want to show you, to pass these around, This is part of your homework book. Homework. homework, what? Oh, Did you say that, Rabbi? Recant. Take it back. I'm out of here. Homework? At my Now, the reason why I want to show it to you, because I want to look at the, at the first page. The first page, this one, this one. The, uh, it's, the, it's a diamond. It's a diamond. Oh, yeah, we'll share it together. That's perfect. Yes. Let's share. Uh, on top, you see, it's the positive traits. Oh, thank you. We have the positive traits on top and the negative traits on bottom, right? There's a, a, a tremendous collection of traits, like I showed you guys earlier, uh, the list of good character traits and bad character traits. Now, these traits, they're innate. They're inborn, right? It's from day one, you have them. Everyone has their own collection of, of good and bad character traits. My grandfather's philosophy was that everyone has one fundamental good trait, that's this one in the box, and one fundamental bad trait. 
Now, being that traits have so much overlap, there's so much overlap amongst the different traits that he, he taught, he espoused, that if a person isolates his number one trait and in descending order, his number two, his number three, his number four or five, his top ten traits in, in ascending and descending order, and conversely, his negative traits, what's the fundamental negative trait? And in, in ascending order, what's number two, number three, number four? He could use this information, this is the, this is the self-discovery <coughs> part, he could use this information in, in his quest towards knowing who you are, and once you know who you are, you know what you're dealing with, how do you improve yourself, how do you perfect yourself? So what he always taught is that you have to Spend time, figure out, find out what is your best mida, what's your best characteristic trait, and conversely, what's your worst characteristic trait. Um, if we take a look at the second page. I, I wrote down a sampling of different good and bad traits that I want you um, over the next week to um, rate yourself where you're holding in these good traits and bad traits. The reason why, and Obviously, this is not an easy thing to write to fill out this diamond form. But it's keep it with you. Maybe one day, maybe maybe you are that organized. Maybe you do know where you're holding. Maybe you do know your top ten good and bad amidos. And if you do, that's great. Write it out. But if not, think about it. Use it as something which um, I, I like it because. And if we're getting started in the Musa process, the first thing we need to do is start thinking about ourselves, thinking about what we do thinking about where we're holding. That's why I have over here in the back, I want you to rate yourself because you probably never thought, well, how kind am I? Most people don't think about those kind of things. On a scale of 1 to 10, where am I holding in humility? How many people have ever thought that? How many people have sat down for 10 minutes and thought to think about that? Most people haven't. That is the first exercise in the Muslim process, to start thinking in that kind of way. On a scale of 1 to 10, am I, am I kind? Oh, I don't know. Most people, you ask them, you know, you, you just shoot from the hip. Are you kind or not? Are you kind or not? Most of them wouldn't know. They'd have to think about it. That's the idea. We're slowly training ourselves to think in a muster kind of way. Um, fine. So let, 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 let's continue. Uh, we'll get to the exact detailing of 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 what the homework is um, at the end. So now muster is composed of two components. On one hand, we have the theoretical part. On the other hand, we have the practical part. The illustration, the best illustration to illustrate this is you have two kids, two children. All children know that fire is hot. All right? Everyone knows. You don't touch the fire, the fire is hot. But now let's say you have one kid who knows that. He knows it intellectually, but he actually never touched the fire. Does he have any doubt whether or not the fire is hot? No, he knows. But his knowledge, his belief isn't as strong as the kid who's actually touched the fire and felt it and had to shoot his hand back, that kid's knowledge is much stronger. Similarly, we have the, in, the intellectual aspect of Musar, learning in a macro way about the different kinds of midos and thinking about where we're holding in, in relation to these different characteristics. That, that's the easy part of Musa. That's also pretty hard, but that's the easy part of Musa. The easy part of Musa is to think about 
okay, there's something called humility, and there's something called kindness, and what does kindness mean? What's the definition of kindness? What are the applications of kindness? Where am I holding in kindness? Where do I want to be in kindness? How do I get there? Right? Let's throw this question around the table. How would a person become more kind? What do you say, Israel? Do something kind. There you go. That is theoretical muster. We think about ideas, we think about kindness, we think about ways to improve our kindness. That is, and you know, over this series, hopefully we'll do a lot of that. It's a lot of brainstorming. How do we improve on, on these characteristics that we're dealing with? That's theoretical. The practical is every day making sure I do five acts of kindness. Every day, no matter what. If you, if you can't find anything, go to the library, put away books. Right? That would, be, that would be a way to do it. That's much harder. I'm going to make myself a more kind person. No matter what, I'm going to commit five acts of kindness every day in order to make myself more of a kind person. That's fine. Doing it is much harder. What happens if you, you can't think of any acts of, of, of kindness to do? You didn't, you didn't fulfill your quota? You go to the library, you pick up books, you hang up five books on, on the shelf. That, on the right place. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> that is the practical... Huh? Come here to the shul and do something. I don't care what you do. Go to the soup kitchen. Whatever, whatever you want. But that, that is the practical aspect of Muslim. And over time, we'll, we'll, we'll test the waters with both of them. Let's, let's talk about Muslim methodology. There's a few very important things. I think Israel uh, taught, um, taught, uh, touched on, on one of them, the most important one. The, the, the methodology of how Muslim works. How do we become more benevolent, kind, considerate, generous, appreciative, humble, hospitable, or conversely, how do we become less impatient, less quick, easily angered? <laughs> the answer is by doing acts of kindness, we'll become more kind. Kind of just do it. Just do it. That, that, that's the most important theme in the realm of, of, of uh, self-perfection is that the actions, they're the ones who influence the, um, the, the temperament. They're the ones who change conduct. I always like to say, um, as a way, by way of analogy, uh, 1983, the movie uh, Trading Places. Rings a bell? It's, uh, it's one of the best movies for like a rabbi who wants to think of nice ideas or good illustrations. There's so much in, in that movie. Basically, they, these two, these investment bankers, they take uh, their, their star prize prodigy from Harvard who works for them, who, who does, uh, you know, their, um, uh, does their trading for them, does their commodities trading for them, and they take him and they switch places, they make a bet between them. They switch places between him and some homeless beggar who is Eddie Murphy. Right? And they take one of them and they, they, they take this guy who was living with the chauffeur and living in his fancy apartment in New York City uh, maybe it wasn't New York City. It was, it was with New York City. And he, they take the, uh, the homeless guy and they switch places. And they take the homeless guy off the street. And they start educating him. They give him a suit and tie. They, they give him a fancy butler and a, you know, and a chauffeur and, and a nice house. And this guy just come off, came off the street. He walks into the house and he starts putting stuff in his pocket like this. <laughs> Everywhere, every pocket. Because he, he, still, he still has a street attitude. I always like to say, like, it's very easy to take the guy off the street put him in the fancy house. But it's very hard to take the street attitude out of him. And over time in the movie, you see he becomes more and more of a respectable person, more and more moral person, you know, more of a, 
like a high, high class person, high society. High, because high, of his environment? Yeah, so, and that's just the environment. I always say, I, I told the guys, um, I was in the Temple Beth Tikva in Clear Lake. Uh, I said, I said, I came to Houston. I said, I'm from New York. In New York, the drivers are terrible. <laughs> and here, the drivers are so courteous. And they're like, what? They're not courteous? <laughs> but anyhow, I'm from New York. You know, uh, and Israel, you know, New York and Israel for sure share that in common. That the drivers, it's also worse. Like, yeah, they drive the worst. They drive like animals in Israel, like animals. <laughs> Would probably drive better. <laughs> and I say, I, you know, how come people from New York? I tell you, the things I've heard in the street in New York, you would never hear in the great state of Texas. Why? Because people from New York are just—they're just much more. You know, it's a much more of a cutthroat environment. Well, also in Texas, if you have that bad of an attitude, you can get shot. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, which means like I want, it, it's like a competitive environment. One every couple of years. Everybody tries to get everything. Yeah, everyone, it's like I'm going to get you before you get me. Yeah, like you drive and it's, I'm telling you, I, I was once making a left turn and the guy said some of the nastiest things you could ever imagine out the window to me, and I wasn't doing anything wrong. You would never get that in Texas. <laughs> And I, you ever know, people from Texas, they're, way, they're more hospitable, they're kind, they're less, you know, in New Yorkers, they're, very, you know, they're, they're more proper. My from New York, and I remember the first time we went up there at Christmas, and we went into a store, and a lady bought something, and she wanted it tied up, and she said, put a string around it, and she threw it at her, she says, take the damn box, or don't take the damn box. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I said, can we stay and watch them? <laughs> <laughs> We had moved here to Houston. I went back to Toronto to see my family, and when I went to a supermarket, and I'm standing in line, and all of a sudden the lady there is pushing ahead of me, and like I was stunned. I says, "This would never happen in Houston," you know. I mean, like the way this was, I, I was just completely stunned. Or if you go into a restaurant in Toronto. The waitresses, I mean, forget it. They're not polite or anything. I mean, it's similar to New York, but in a different way. I actually but, find the people from, my wife's from Toronto, so like I said, I find people from Toronto to be so nice also, like so courteous, like drivers, they do the wave, you know, the wave. Well, <laughs> what year was that? Uh, <laughs> it's because it's so hot here, we just can't get too worked up over anything. Yeah, and you know what, that might it's be. really what but it But people are just, just nice. They're like, it's, it's like a homey place. It's like a homey place. It's a homey environment. Southern mentality. Yes, hospitality. hospitality. Yeah. But I, yes, are people right. here, like, um, uh, you know, physiologically any different than they are in New York? What would you say? I think it's a slower know, pace I'm here. I'm from Ohio. <laughs> I'm from Ohio. They're very nice over there. But physiologically, no, they're not. Obviously not. So, so what is it? It's just that that's the environment that you win and you, you acclimate to your environment. So I was thinking if you acclimate to your environment, how much more, like, which means that the environment influences who we are. Like if you're going to be around people who are more hospitable, you're going to be more hospitable yourself. How much more so if you're going to act hospitable, you yourself are, in, are going to be involved in hospitable things, how much more so you become more of a hospitable person? So, so that's that. Environment and much more so actions, they influence the person. Now this is very important. Very, very important. Uh, Musser methodology. We always have to take small, bite-sized steps. You try to do it all in one, all, you try to just say, I'm becoming a better, you know, um, less impetuous person. I'm going to do everything calm. I'm going to count to 10 before I say anything. 
It's not going to happen if you're a very impetuous person. Yeah. What an impetuous thing to attempt. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, the, if, if you want to have deep, fundamental, long-lasting change, it has to be done slowly. If it goes slowly, you're able to build upon your successes, and um, you'll, you'll um, be able to, what grows in slowly will remain. Right? Slowly but surely. If you try to do too big of a jump, you try to do too much at once, you're going to fail. You're going to fall flat down your face. For me, it seems like to work on one meto, even if it's two weeks, three weeks, or four weeks, however long it takes, to really work with it, feel it, uh, you know, experience it in everyday life. For, that's, for, that's just the way I feel about it. You know? that, that's for sure a good way to do it. You spend four weeks on one topic, four weeks on becoming... That, that, that's slow, but I want to tell you a story. Okay. My grandmother, my father's mother, grew up in a place called Slabotka. Probably no one's ever heard of it because it's a small city in Lithuania. But it had one of the biggest yeshivas in the world before the war. It relocated to, to Hebron um, and to, they have branches everywhere now. But it was one of the uh, primary yeshivas um, before, before uh, World War II. Her father was the dean of the yeshiva, my, my grandmother's father. He spent two years on one midah, on one characteristic trait. Like oh, yes. He spent two years on heavy merkabah, let's call Adam Mesever Panim Yafot, which is a, a Mishnah in Perkei Avot, which means you should greet every person with a pleasant countenance. He spent two years working on that. He spent two years on, on, one, on one characteristic. That's going to stay. And even when he was in the camps, he was in the most treacherous situation human beings have ever been in, 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 in World War II and the Holocaust. He never once lost his smile. Even he was, in, he was burnt alive. The Nazis burnt alive in 1944 but in, in, a, in a hospital. But there is a firsthand uh, accounting um, of what he was like hours before he passed away. He was going um, from, from bed to bed, comforting people, making them feel better, always with a smile on his face, always calm, because he had spent so much time working on it. I mean, like if I would tell you guys, two years on just greeting someone with a pleasant countenance, but yeah, it could even extend to that. Obviously, we won't be doing, we won't spend the next two years on one, on one characteristic here. For me, I'd have to. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you, the deeper and deeper you, you internalize these ideas into yourself, the more permanent it'll be. As long as the candle's burning. Exactly. <laughs> as long as the candle's burning. <laughs> By way of illustration, the, in the temple, um, the ramp to the temple wasn't stepped. Now, if you, you know the, the, the area, the square footage of the temple wasn't that big wasn't that big. And the most dominating thing was the, 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 the 65 foot ramp that went up to the altar. And if, if any one of us were there, we would say, oh, wait a minute, why can't you build like a nice spiral staircase or some other way of getting, it, it dominated the entire temple is this massive ramp to walk up to the altar. There's gotta be a more uh, efficient way of getting up there, more like with tapping up all the room. How come it's a ramp? How come it's not steps? So that there could be other ways to, to do it. So there's two very pertinent ideas um, that answer this question. Number one, if you were to take a, a tennis ball and you would put it on your steps, you would put it, secure it 
on one of the steps, you would leave it there. And you would go on a two-month vacation. Right? Everywhere. Caribbean, South America, Italy. You touch the whole world. You come back, you open up your house, you go to the step, the ball will still be there. Right? Because there's a plateau, there's a plateau and there's a step. And there's, there's room for it, it'll, it'll, it'll stay there. In Judaism, we teach that if you're not growing up, if you're not growing, you're going, you're, 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 um, you're going backwards. You move in the wrong direction. You're degenerating, so to speak. There's, you're always in perpetual motion. It's like a treadmill. Like if you try to sit in the treadmill, you're just, you're just going to move backwards. You have to constantly walk in order to make, keep up and to grow. That's the first idea from the ramp in the temple which is important for us. We always have to be growing people. We always have to, we can't just take a few months off from our pursuits of, of, of Musar and, and character perfection. We can't say, okay, fine, I'm on vacation now, got no patience for it, Rabbi Walby, I don't want to hear about it for, you know, come back to me September 1st. You can't do that. You'll regress. That's the first lesson. The second lesson we can learn from the, the ramp in the, to- in, in the temple is that Steps. Some engineer decided that eight and a half inches is the most broad, uh, if you take the most broad uh, uh, population block, that's the proper step, that's the most comfortable step for them. Eight and a half inches. But you have young children who who are small bodies, eight and a half inches is very high for them. It's very hard for little kids to walk up steps. They should have smaller steps, similarly the elderly. They also need smaller steps. On the other hand, you have high school kids who need a foot and a half in order to, you know, to stretch their muscles. But in, you know, in the, the environment that we live in is that you can't accommodate everyone. You can't accommodate everyone. So what they do is they take the most, the broadest population block, right, which is, you know, anyone between the age of, you know, 18 and, you know, whatever, um, and, they, and they try to come up with the, with, with the height which is perfect for everyone or as many people as, they, as possible. But a ramp, there's no predetermined amount of elevation, amount of ascension that's needed. You could go an inch a year and you're still moving up. You could go a foot a day and you're still moving up. In Judaism, we don't believe in cookie-cutter, predetermined, predesigned rates of, of improvement. In Judaism, you have to go at your own pace. You have to move not too fast, not too slow, whatever is comfortable for you. Don't move, don't push too hard. Don't force yourself to do things which you're not, you're not ready to do on one hand. Don't go too slow because then you, know, you, you could achieve more. Whatever is right for you. And I always like to say the story. <clears throat> I know we're, it's already 9 o'clock, but I'll just quickly finish off. You have about two minutes. Two minutes, okay. <laughs> so there's a story. So I'll skip the story. We'll, I'll just, we'll give you five. We'll give you five, okay. Um, so my grandfather, in 1972, after the Yom Kippur War, he um, spent his time going to uh, Israeli um, bases, Israeli camps, in the Sinai Desert. He would go there and he would speak and he would give lectures and give discourses and talk to people and he would try to, you know, do outreach to, you know, to speak to these soldiers who went through harrowing experiences during the war. And he noticed, he noticed, they were flying very low, very close to the surface, and he asked the pilot the Israeli plane, how come we're flying so low? So he said, we're trying to avoid Egyptian radar. Trying to so they fly very low, they fly under the radar. So the Muslim master, what does he do with such a story? He says, ah, 
that is the way we need to grow. That is the way we need to change. You have to fly under the radar of all the forces that are trying to stop you from changing. We have so many forces. We have the Sahara who wants us to do bad things. We have our own inertia which wants us to remain as stagnant as possible. We have our, our uh, modes of conduct that we're used to that are very resistant to change. To fly under the radar, just do it, do it quietly. Do it. No one needs to know about it. Do it as quietly as as as, as um, measured as possible in order to not cause to fly under the radar. That's a, that was a very cute idea of of how we're supposed to approach our own our own uh, spiritual growth. And once again, this story is indicative of how a Muslim person thinks. Right? He, someone tells him something that has to do with Egyptian radar. And he uses that as an idea of how a person is supposed to grow. Then he used uh, other, uh, other ideas he used also from airplanes. This airplane, you start growing very slowly, and you're flying, you're just growing just on the ground. You're not flying. But once you take off, you're able to ascend at a much greater, much greater rate. You start slowly, and eventually, and eventually yeah, you, pick, you pick up speed. Okay, so what, I just want to give an outline of what was, that, that's the injustice from us, sir. I want to give an outline of what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks. Um, we're going to go uh, trade by trade. We have a whole list of trades over here in the back. Um, I don't know what we'll start with, but that'll be next week. We'll start with one of the trades, and uh, we're going to do a few things with it. We're going to define it. The most important thing is to get a definition of what it, what it means. Um, which some of them are pretty straightforward. Some of them are a little bit more complex, like... For example, uh, the, the definition of kindness. Who wants to throw out a definition for what kindness means? Putting yeah. others before yourself. Very good. I like that. I like that. Uh, Greet someone nicely. What's the definition of kindness? Define kindness. So you said putting someone before yourself. Think about others. Think about, think about others. That, yeah. that, that's, that's the definition I would give. I would probably say it in this way only because this is what I heard from my grandfather. He said a story, and we everyone loves stories. The day before Pesach, the day before Passover, someone comes over to the rabbi and says, Rabbi, I have a halachic question I want to ask you. So the rabbi says, Pesach asked what Shabbos would be the question. He says, he wants to know the four cups of wine. Everyone knows we eat, drink the four cups of wine on the night of the Seder. He wants to know what is the halachic permissibility of using milk. Milk, not with brisket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you use milk for the food? <laughs> That's very good, also. It's a good point because that's a little. So he said he thinks about it. He, says, no. he gives her a lot of money. He says, "Go buy yourself wine." And his wife's there. He's like, Rabbi, I understand they didn't have enough money to buy wine. But he didn't need to give him so much money. He gave him so much more money than the matter will cost to buy four cups of wine. So he said, he said, from their question, he asked, he, he asked, could he drink, could he drink milk? So obviously he's not eating Brisket. meat. <laughs> he obviously doesn't have any money to buy meat. So from his question, we could see he doesn't have meat either. So therefore, I give him money for, to buy money to, to buy a whole a whole not just wine, also. No, it wasn't meat. just wine; it was all the meal. Yeah. So, but this, so, so my grandfather said, this rabbi exemplifies kindness, because kindness is to try to superimpose yourself upon the other person, try to figure out what is he going through. Someone asks you a question, you don't say, 
oh, I don't know, I should use, uh, should use moat or not. I don't know how a rabbi would approach that. That's a complicated question. Well, well probably not. It says wine, you should use moat. I don't know. But this rabbi says, what is this person going through? He's asking me this question. It must be that he doesn't have meat, like you said. There has to be a boundary, though, because you could be a fool, too. Well, for sure. We don't ever want to, uh, you know, we don't condone that in any way. You, know, you can't be a fool. You have to be, you have to be smart. You have to be sharp. Um, but uh, that, that's how you define kindness. Superimposing yourself on someone else trying to figure out what they're going through and what their needs are. Don't say, okay, fine, someone asked me, you know, pass me, pass me the, the ketchup. So you pass me the ketchup. Is that kindness? That's not kindness. That's derecheretz. That, that, that's just res- respect. Kindness is to think about what the person is going through. Try to think. Okay, look at someone. What? Put yourself in their shoes. Put yourself in their shoes, exactly. What is this person going through? That's the definition of, of kindness. So that's the first thing. We want to define what characteristic is. Number two, we want to learn a little about it. We want to get an inventory of what, where we're holding in that, in that amida. We want to think of ways we can improve. And the last thing is always homework. Oh, God. Okay, so uh, the homework that I want to give this week is, this is very hard. This is probably the hardest thing to do is to fill out your own, um, your own diamond, your own chart of, of where, you know, where you're holding, what's your number one characteristic, good characteristic, what's your number one bad. That's very hard. That's, it's, a life's, it's a life's effort. But I want to get you guys thinking about these kind of things. I want you to start thinking about your midos, about your characteristics. And if you know for sure what your best characteristic is, go ahead, write it, write it out. But this is something that I want you guys to keep. Um, I want everyone here, I want y'all to, uh, to keep with you at, throughout your spiritual growth. You'll, you'll be able to fill in more and more of your spiritual self. Now, you want us to fill just this and this, or you want... No, this is number one, your good uh-huh. one. You're, this is number one, your bad one. Right. This is number two, number three, number four, number five. Oh. All your, yeah, so it's ten. Ten good, ten bad. It's not such an easy task. Well, I'll be honest right. with you. Uh, my older brother, Rabbi Arya Wolby, he has his filled out. Uh, myself, I don't have mine filled out. We're still working on it. Um, Do we fill out all of these? Yeah, fill them all. This this? Yes. Uh, yes. What? No. Yes. What? Yes. Fill them all out. There's, there's the, um, uh, one over here. That's your best. Your best uh, characteristic. Your positive and your negative here. Right? Yes. This is number two. This is number three. This is number four. This is number five. Oh, so all of oh, okay. So all of these are your positive. So you have to fill out exactly. literally the whole page. But you, but you have to do this page. Yeah. This one is this one's be a little easier. This um, I want everyone to do if they can. If you have time this week, it'll be a great exercise. But and it's it's one thing that we're training our brains to think differently. What trains our brain to do things that they never that their, our brain never did. We want to take here. Is a, there's a list of of, of good uh, midos of good characteristics, a list of bad characteristics, and everyone. You don't have to share this with anyone, by the way. You don't have to bring it in and have me sign it. That's not what it's about. It's just an exercise that you could do yourself to try to see where am I holding, and you have to think about it. Well, alacrity, uh, zrizut. Um, do I procrastinate a lot? Am I am I speedy? Am I am I resolute? Am I decisions? Latter means a person when a person has an idea. Exactly. 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 What? what? I'm sorry. He you, have, a, you have an idea, you do it, right? Um, How would you describe it? Yeah, like, alacrity is a... You don't, is, pro- is, is you don't procrastinate. Kind of you don't procrastinate. You don't procrastinate, exactly. It's, it's uh, like um, uh, Abraham, when he went to go greet the angels, he, he, he met them with alacrity. He, he jumped to them. 
it's, you jump to it. You, you kind of like you move it like have to kind of idea. Sorry, I didn't mean to steal your. I thought I was. I'm happy that you that you just. <laughs> It's just because like, I, I learned the word alacrity in my microbiology class and on that story. And that's how I know what the word means. I hadn't learned it prior to rabbinical school. Well, that's interesting. Order so, and so, Seder. Yeah. Like, like yes, right. Seder means order. Um, but it's, it's an exercise, which is a fascinating exercise, where you have to, have to sit by yourself for a few minutes, maybe in a few hours, and think, where am I holding with regards to all these? This is very different than I've ever done. But having done the second page, doesn't the first one become no because um, but no because I mean, really well, this, kind of this, this, this is just which ones are the well, this is just this yeah. is just a sampling of different midos. There's more. There's more midos. Okay. And also, like this is an exercise, okay. and maybe we can have one of these at the end, and you can see if you if you've changed or how you've grown or if you feel that there's a change. This is a picture of a person's spiritual self. This is it. If you fill it out, that's who you are. That's who you are as, as a spiritual. Next week, God willing, I'll bring in um, a copy of my grandfather's filled out. Oh my, that would it's be very, nice. It's very fascinating. Oh my goodness. His filled out. You have it framed? In his book, he writes. Uh-huh. He, gives, he shows this. He says, this is who you are on the spiritual way. And he says, I'll give you an example. And he shows this thing with, with, with it filled out. And if you know anything about my grandfather, you know that he actually put it in his own, his own diamond. So that's so that's um, um, that's the that's the job this week. And I want to thank, first of all, once again, Rabbi Estes for bringing us in. Torch and myself are very grateful to be here with this wonderful, thank terrific you. group of, of people. Yeah, yes. I want guys to make. I want to pass. I want to pass this around if we can. I want to fill out. Um, their, can you tell me something about Torch? I know a bit about Chabad, but I don't know that much about Torch. Torch is, um, let's start with Torch, what Torch is not. Mm-hmm. It's also important to distinguish. Torch is not a synagogue. Mm-hmm. We don't operate any um, uh, rabbinical. Yeah. Does that mean my last name? Yes. Or my whole name? Your whole name and your email. Just check off that you came. Um, Torch is not a synagogue. Torch doesn't do marriages, it doesn't do conversions, it doesn't, um, it's not involved in any life cycle, like, you know, it's not the typical Jewish organization, which is like a, a shul of sorts. We don't have any, um, we don't have a, uh, any pastoral rabbis, we don't have, uh, we don't uh, organize any, any prayers, we don't do any of those stuff. Um, we don't, we're nonpartisan. we don't have any affiliations. You know, we partner with every different Isn't stream. Isn't there a Milo Minion? What that's, is, that's, that's the is, independent. Just, is, just give a check. Just give a check. Today is the May 3rd. Oh, okay. Just give oh, a check. Is there a torch in any other city? Torch is the Torah Outreach Resource Center of Houston. We only operate in Houston. We have, we have um, one, two classes in Clear Lake, one class in Humble, and there's some stuff going on in San Antonio. But besides for that. Land. And Sugarland, right. Um, but besides for that, we're we're pretty much um, centered in Houston. Do y'all have an office? We have an office, but we have some people working in the office. But Where's the office? The office oh. is on Fondren. Okay. And yeah, uh, not or not yeah, not, not far, not far. Okay. But we don't have it's it's just it's just a um, administrative office. It's not um, nothing happens so there. So what is your focus then? What is so Shalhevet is our big is our big. That, 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 that's, the, uh, that's the big part of the organization. That's what we have. We partner with 
with 11, now 12, congregations in Houston providing adult education. Like for example, like this, this, this class is a partnership of congregation RME and Torch, where we come to RME and people here are, are, um, are members of, of the congregation and, and we come and we partner with them in, in providing education. Right? We're in a, uh, 12 different uh, communities, uh, uh, congregations every single week. Yes, but, but when Torch started out here in Houston, what did they do? Do you know? So they started off, it was 1998, it was a long time ago, but, mm. well, they did some, we're actually, we're at a crossroads now, an educational crossroads. What are those things that um, First, we we, we did a lot of different things back in the past that we don't do anymore. We like, for example, we don't have any presence on campus. We don't do any, any, any campus outreach. We don't do any of that. Um, but uh, that's our big thing. We teach in high schools. We have 250 uh, students every every single week in different programs, different high schools. Yeah. We have the Jewish Ethics Institute, Rabbi Grossman. Right, that's that's big. I used to work for congregation with Rumba. I was in their department. Oh, really lovely. Well, so I, at that time, when I was there, Torch used to come in and study. And I'd be in my little office, and I'd be yelling and screaming, and I'd run out. What's going on here? Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, you know. We're just studying, you know. And then I understood, of course, I knew, but I just, they were so loud. You know? That's when I met uh, the rabbis. Well, this was very interesting. I must say this is an area that I have not studied. Well, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. So it's really how to improve yourself. Yes. Yes, that's what it's all about. It's all about self-improvement. Yeah. Becoming better people. Thank you. Okay. Not bad. Not bad? No, thank you. I'll tell my wife. <laughs> not bad. <laughs> I, I rarely offer high praise on that's good. I get used to it. So I have to be a bit more exposed. Yes, I've seen some of that before. I think one of the things that I'll have to watch and see is working with a young rabbi who doesn't have the life experience of the people here. Yeah, I'm a young whippersnapper. So sometimes, well, a few times I'm not the youngest person in the room. Yes. So, so Does that make you feel better, Rabbi? Does that make you feel better? He feels older now. He's older. Enthusiasm and I'm largely theoretical knowledge has to be tempered. You know what? I'm here to learn as well. I'm here to learn. You're learning from us. That's the point. He wants, life to get, he, he wants to get his metaphor. He wants to get his flying below the exactly. <laughs> Find my own niche. So in other or words, niche. it doesn't matter how old we are, we're always learning. Sure. It's always to learn. Always to grow. As long as the candle is burning, it's exactly. time for a burn. Exactly. I'd like you to suggest a book that I could get. Well, have I could you heard understand. of the Mooser Institute? Moussa Institute. No, I have. Moussa Institute. Moodle the Moussa Institute. Alan Marinus. He um, 
obviously as a name. That we use the Morena spray. You do use it? Yeah. It's fantastic. I have both of it. I have Jacob's Ladder, which I have written all over, and then mm -hmm. his second one that's got... Holiness? Uh, yeah. Everyday Holiness, yeah. Everyday Holiness. There you go. Two books, we, two books by Rabbi... Uh, he's not Rabbi. He's just no, Alan Morena. Um, he does a fantastic job talking about Monsieur, describing what it is. Oh, where do you Two get books. Those books? Jacob's Ladder. I don't know. I'm sure yeah, you can find it on Jacob's Amazon. Climbing <laughs> Jacob's Ladder. And uh, Everyday Barnes Holiness. Alan Morinus. M. How do you spell his name? M O R I N I S. I think. He's Canadian. Mm. Here, one more. Okay, sure. Give it out. I'm funny with this. See, I'm taking it. I'm not guaranteeing you I'm going to do it, but <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah, that's for sure the first step. Yeah. 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 No guarantee. Exactly. Exactly. Having decided that worry is not only a negative choice.